Hey everyone, greetings of the day. Welcome to the Ken's Year Ender podcast on EdTech. I am Jaydeep Vaidya and I'm joined by my two colleagues who cover the space, Olina Banerjee from India and Yunindita Prasidya from Indonesia. Hey guys. Hi, hi JD. Hi Lena. Hi JD, hi Dita. Glad to be here. So we're going to discuss the year that has gone by in EdTech in both countries, followed by what we expect to happen in the sector in 2022. I'm sure you all know that the pandemic proved to be a watershed moment for the EdTech industry worldwide. Online learning has witnessed significant growth among both students and working professionals. And India and Indonesia with populations of 1.3 billion and 270 million have both been hotbeds for edtech in fact um, amitabh kant who heads the indian government's top public policy think tank niti ayog is confident that india can become an edtech capital of the world a key player in this regard will obviously be byju's which has added many feathers to its hat in 2021 uh let's see it's the first indian startup to cross 20 billion in valuation the 13th most valued unicorn in the world and the most valued edtech startup in the world byju's has also been on a shopping spree having acquired as many as 10 startups this year in fact it's amazing what all byju's owns now from competitors to the indian cricket team <laughs> to shahrukh khan neeraj chopra and also lately the attention of the bbc and corrupt politicians in parliament <laughs> in fact i'm not entirely certain whether byju's owns me also by now okay bad joke let's <laughs> move on from that olina a lot of consolidation seems to have happened in the indian edtech space over the last year can you like tell us exactly you know what has gone on absolutely jd maybe byju's is the true metaverse you you never know you know it's all around you uh maybe you live your life in it we'll never know till we know but yeah i think i think interestingly uh byju's has just actually news broke as yesterday uh, and we we're recording on the 17th of december so this is 16th of december news broke that they're planning to go public by as early as january 2022 via a spac vehicle which has become sort of you know the the favorite of big uh, edtechs and big tech companies that don't want too much scrutiny going on uh, in in their books so that should tell you something but yes byju's has been on a shopping spree and i think it's culminating in in this in this giant sort of spac they're going to conduct where they're almost going to be valued at 48 billion dollars which is almost double of what valuation they've earned up till now and i think very much the souping up of companies has been uh, has been a result of a couple of things that happened in the indian edtech sector one of course investors have reposed a lot of faith and you know sort of drawn a really hard red line under the byju's business model which is to gain a lot of users gain a lot of revenue and also expand into many different areas so it's been a real sort of uh, boost for the byju's business model The second thing of course and that's happened across the world is online learning uh, due to the pandemic and there's been a record number of students actually getting access to smartphones in the last two years in India even parents who are not able to afford smartphones otherwise have sort of gone out of their way and and made sure that their kids had access to some kind of online class so that's that's obviously 
been uh, sort of a real pad up to Baiju's numbers as well. And I think the third thing that's happened, interestingly, is the fact that a lot of smaller companies in the Indian edtech space are finding it increasingly hard to compete with the likes of Baiju's and the three or four other unicorns uh, in, in the industry. So the question really is, do you want to innovate within a niche and do you want to kind of dig your heels into the ground and hold on to a company? Do you want to compete with these big unicorns? Or do you want to roll over and say, hey, we're going to have an easier life as part of Baiju's? So that's why I think you've probably seen, you know, as many as 10 acquisitions happen this year. And it's not just Baiju's. I think the other four or five unicorns like Unacademy, Upgrad, uh, and Vedantu, those are sort of top of mind have all in their own ways followed the Baiju's playbook by going after companies in areas that they weren't experts in, that they didn't have teams in, and sort of they've chosen to buy over building uh, in the last year. Right. And Dita, coming to you, like, what's been happening in Indonesia? Is there like a Baiju's equivalent there? Or is it a completely different story? Oh, it's it's interesting that we start with Baiju because I think it provides a contrast to the attack landscape in Southeast Asia. Right now, Baiju, as you've mentioned, JD, is the most valued at the company in the world. In Southeast Asia, we haven't seen an at the company growing into a valuation as big as Baiju, which is probably the reason why we haven't seen big acquisitions like what Baiju is doing in India, in Indonesia, and Southeast Asia. And, and Southeast Asia itself is a really big market, right? It's, it's hard to group all of these countries and explain them in one entity. So in this podcast, I'll mostly be talking about Indonesia, not just because I'm from Indonesia, which also plays a part as well, but because it's the biggest market for EdTech right now. EdTech is still a nascent market all across Southeast Asia, but in a region where the average deal size for EdTech remains small, for Series B, it's about 5 million. Ruangguru, which is an EdTech platform based in Indonesia, managed to raise a 150 million Series C in 2019. And they've now raised at least $205 million so far. So one thing that I find interesting about Wanguru's approach is that it's building an education super app in Indonesia. It started as a platform to match make between teachers and K-12 students. And now it has language learning courses. It has tryouts. It has upskilling program. Even interactive content for grade 4, 5, and 6. And they just launched the content this year. It's actually a trend that I'm noticing that EdTech platforms are targeting younger and younger segment, with Ruangguru targeting grade 4, 5, and 6. But there's also Zenius, a K-12 player, which has mostly been focusing on targeting high school students. Now they're also building content for junior high school kids. And actually, I think this makes a lot of sense, right? To put it plainly, if you're on your way into becoming an education super app and you're racing with everyone else to expand your user base, the best strategy to create this lifelong learners is really if you can convince this user base to jump into your platform early. So in a way, you have a lot more runway to monetize this user base as well. I was just wondering, why do you think the players that focus by starting with these younger segments uh, will do better in, in comparison to players that started with the older segment and then they move to the younger audience? That's Purely my guess that they might do better. Uh, of course, you know, Baiju's could obviously come in and, and buy them out in, you know, in a blink of an eye. But 
what I understand from just speaking to some of these uh, companies or the, some of these founders is that they come in with sort of different mindset about what younger kids need. So maybe the time duration of the lessons that they sign up for or the characters, for instance, that they use, the kind of gamification might be different. Also, I think, interestingly, a lot of edtechs might start partnering more and more with schools, for instance, target parents a lot more in their app rather than just directly reach out to children because children that age will not have the understanding or agency as much as older kids. So it this is purely my guess, but I, I feel like these are some of the things that are different in the DNA of a founder and an edtech that's going sort of, that's entering the edtech sector at a much younger age. Right. So Alina, you did a great story in April on um, remediation and the hard lessons that India learned from a lost school year. Have things changed since then? It's honestly very hard to say that they have because I think schools, unfortunately, have been in a constant state of lockdown and reopenings. And it's been sort of a bit of a cycle. What I understood when we looked at the remediation story was that on average, government school students in India are already a couple of grades behind in either readability or in terms of the math sums that they're supposed to be able to do at a certain grade. And they're already running two or three years behind that. Now with the with the pandemic, they've effectively lost out on two years of learning in class. Some of the students would have been lucky enough to have very proactive teachers, to have good smartphones and devices at home and have access to good lessons. So maybe the learning gap is going to be a little bit less. But from what I understand, in India, I think, has, has one of the largest school-going populations in the world. And a majority of that population goes to underfunded government schools where, where it's been difficult to reach students, to be very honest, you know. And it's been difficult to sort of impart lessons at, uh, at a regular click. And those students, I'm afraid, are going to end up in grades where they are almost five or six years behind. So in India, I think that's a dire situation. I don't think there's been enough attention paid to that. And, and of course, health concerns take uh, higher precedence when there is a pandemic. But we are on the precipice of a very significant learning or, or might I say lack of learning epidemic, which you know needs to be arrested. I'm curious to know, actually, uh, Dita, what has been the situation in Indonesia with online schooling? I think for the most part, it's quite the same with what you just described, Alina. I think online schooling works to some extent. Everyone in Indonesia is really doing their best to make online learning work. But there's just so many fundamental problems that makes online schooling so difficult to get right. I can like make a <laughs> shopping list of mm. all the problems that students are facing when it comes to online learning. there's And I'm pretty sure this is something that a lot of media has brought up. Number one, there's the problem of digital divide. There are stories in Indonesia of students having to climb trees to gain signal access. And you would think like this is a problem in rural parts of Indonesia. Even in cities, say a student can have access to a mobile device you can use to connect it to your online class. But you might not have enough money to purchase mm -hmm. a phone credit for you to access the internet. And that's on access, right? There's also the problem of quality of education. And even before the pandemic, we're already struggling with a gap of quality education across Indonesia. 
parents who can afford to send their kids to private or international schools probably would. But I would say a great majority of Indonesians go to public school. I'm, I'm also an outcome of mm-hmm. public schooling in Indonesia. I'm raised in Indonesia. I'm born in Indonesia. I go to public schools in Indonesia. And during my education years, there's like a, a top public schools that everyone goes to. And the competition to enter those schools were tight. And I'm pretty sure to some extent that problem still exists um, in Indonesia right now. But there's also the problem of the quality of teachers. The quality of teachers across Indonesia vary by a lot. So even when a student have the gadget mm-hmm. to access online schooling, the money to buy the phone bill, it doesn't mean that they will get quality education. And I'm not saying this to discredit the teachers in Indonesia. And I think there's one thing um, we learn from having kids learning from home is that we learn that teaching your kids Anything is hard, right? Yeah. So yeah. major props to the teacher. Uh, we need these teachers. We need to help to lighten these teachers' load as well. And I think education technology platforms are helping in that regard. In my opinion, what EdTech does is that it gives students with the option to access quality learning. It takes some weight off the teacher's shoulders. Uh, and I see there's been a lot of initiatives going on to, for example, help teacher manage classes Um, help teacher with the provision of question banks or learning materials that they can choose from. Hmm. And uh, what about working professionals? Have any of the edtechs swooped in to target, you know, the upskilling market during the pandemic, Olena? Let's change the mood of our discussion <laughs> now uh, from it being all all doom and gloom. But no, I think I think that's where it's been encouraging. It's been exciting. Uh, I don't know about efficacy. Don't ask me about efficacy yet. But we've seen platforms like Upgrad really expand their reach over the last two years because there were a lot of working professionals. And I think if you think back to 2020, right, JD, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about whether people would still have their jobs, whether whether the economy would be able to survive the shutdowns. And there was a lot of uncertainty about are we good enough for our jobs anymore? Are our roles going to exist you know, post this pandemic, are we going to be required? So I think a lot of young professionals decided to take a break, decided to sign up for upskilling courses. Uh, They decided to kind of improve their knowledge set. And that, I think, goes even for students who are planning to maybe sign up for expensive MBAs or expensive courses outside. They sort of took a gap year and did shorter upskilling courses. So I think For a company like Upgrad, their customer base really opened up. And it was similar for other upskilling platforms in India as well. And I think what's interesting is this year for higher education, I think colleges and universities in India also realized how far behind the curve they were in terms of digital adoption, right? And if we talk about classrooms being ill-equipped, I mean, hello, universities and colleges were were way behind schools in terms of innovation, right? So it was also an easy sell for platforms like Upgrad to go to a college and say, run your classes on our platform, tie up with us. We will provide degrees to students with, you know, your name on it. So we see a lot of tie-ups between IITs and IIMs and other sort of management courses and platforms like Upgrad, because what Upgrad is able to do is bring the technology, bring the expertise there. And universities obviously need a way to sort of keep their students engaged and 
run these online classes. So I think, yes, upskilling has been a huge opportunity uh, over the last two years. People have realized you don't really have to travel and be in a classroom to learn something, especially for short-term courses. So we also see a lot of alternate MBAs, uh, a lot of boot camps come up in India over the last two years. We've written extensively about them. I would encourage our readers to go and check out those stories. But I think the takeaway from that is People have realized that learning doesn't have to be in lecture mode. Learning doesn't have to be sort of one to many. It can be in peer groups. It can be online. It can be anytime. Interesting because like the number of courses that I have started on Coursera <laughs> and never completed is just like a different story altogether. Uh, but uh, Dita, what's happening in Indonesia in terms of upskilling? Yeah, I think two things happen in this segment. One is that the attack players that are already targeting the upskilling market are growing really, really fast. Figures you would perhaps see in the e-commerce segment, you're now seeing th those figures in the attack sector as well. I'm talking about an increase of traffic of over 400%, an increase wow. of paying users of more than 20 times during the pandemic. And these numbers are just crazy if you think about it, right? I'll, I'll explain why this is happening in a bit. Um, so that's the first thing, the growth of the existing players. The second thing is that more players are entering the upscaling market. So those are the two major trends that I'm noticing in the upscaling segment. And on the point of why this is happening right now, the main reason I would say is that the pandemic coincided with the rollout of a government subsidized program called Kartu Prakerja. And just to give a size of this program, right, it's worth 30 trillion rupiah which if you convert that, that's around $2 billion US dollar. That's the amount of money that goes between 2020 and 2021. So the program was introduced in March 2020, and it's still running now. And about 11 million people have participated in the program so far. So that's $2 billion USD, 11 million people. These are really, really huge numbers. Now for the EdTech platforms that are part of the program, what this essentially means by you becoming part of the program is free marketing and free money rolling into your courses. You join these programs as course providers, and there's millions of people choosing the courses that they want to attend through the Kartu Prakerja program. And these people are basically using government money to purchase the courses. So basically, you get new users without any acquisition costs. So it makes sense why a lot of education technology platforms would want to be a part of this program. And as I was looking for updates on how many education platforms are a part of the program now, uh, when the Kartu Prakarja program started, there's only 30 platforms that exist on the program. And now there are 181 course providers on the Kartu Prakarja program. I would like to note that these are not all EdTech natives, as in like they didn't start out with an EdTech proposition. Interesting. Uh, so we're talking yeah. about conventional upscaling institutes that mostly operate offline, but because of Kartu Prakarja, they are now growing their online products as well. All right, so we're almost out of time now. So let's move on to our final section. The most interesting section, predictions. <laughs> so starting with you, Alina, what do you expect will happen in Indian tech in 2022? It's such a wide canvas right now that it's it's difficult to pull you know, all the trends together, but I'm going to try. I think one of the biggest fallouts over the last year has been the fact that China has clamped down on its edtech industry massively. 
and essentially just if for our listeners if you don't know what happened essentially for profit at tech some of the biggest most valued companies in the world have now essentially been turned into non-profits which sort of kills their earning potential completely so a lot of investors that were invested in the chinese at tech market are going to find new more exciting avenues to invest in and a lot of indian at tech entrepreneurs are very excited that that money is going to come their way <laughs> and it might i think though what we have to watch out for is over consolidation in the indian at tech sector this is where i think i started the podcast this is i think my top observation is the four or five at techs at the very top of the food chain are looking to gobble up every type of competition they're trying to be in every type of niche so even for vcs coming in eventually you're going to find that you only have a seat at the table if you are willing to shell out more and more and more because as these four or five unicorns keep acquiring more users keep acquiring more companies their valuations are only going to go up so it's going to get more difficult to buy stake here right i think it's going to be a fine balance between more money flowing in and where that money is going to also what's going to be very interesting is that the government for instance is becoming sort of keenly interested in edtech and they've set up a couple of committees they've tied you know they've made some initial rumblings about tying up with byju's and and topper uh, and a few other edtech companies so i think on both ends there's interest to try and figure out how to get the concept of education technology in front of more students from different backgrounds from different sort of economic segments and that's going to be interesting because i think that's going to change the shape of edtech products in india you can't just have products that run on a tablet or you know a high end smartphone you're going to have to create something for uh, maybe sort of a 50 dollar phone or a 100 dollar phone and you're going to have to figure out how to do this in different languages how to do this in different modes uh, you're going to have to figure out how to do much cheaper much smaller modules and i think the third interesting thing that's going to happen is Indian edtech expanding abroad we already see that happening with Byju's we see that happening with Upgrad actually who's who started operations in Africa um we see that happen both both an academy and vedantu are interested in in getting audiences in say the middle east or in other english speaking countries so with the absence of chinese edtech i think this is more a possibility for indian edtech to expand to global audiences because we have certain arbitrages that work in our favor one i think hiring cheaper teachers in india is is much easier than hiring city teachers in the us or or in the uk and we also have the language advantage which i think chinese edtech didn't have when when they were trying to expand to different countries i'm totally crystal balling and i could be completely wrong but these are the three things that i think are most interesting about the indian edtech space to i mean the most interesting spaces to watch going into 2022 right and deeta what do you think will happen in indonesia next year uh i'll i'll do the quick predictions as well and i'll start with how alina started her predictions so number 1 i would say a lot more chinese money will pour in into southeast asia and indonesia As Alina was saying, the crackdown in the Chinese market has an impact in the Indian market, and it will certainly have an impact in the Southeast Asia market as well. 
likely you will see Chinese investors looking into the region or maybe even Chinese players trying to enter the Southeast Asian market. Second, I would say that we will see a lot more collaboration between the attack player and the government in Indonesia, especially on the subject of teacher assistance initiatives. So the aim will still to better the learning process of students in Indonesia, but I would say the focus will be in equipping teachers with the right tool sets to do it. And last but not least, um, I think there's a lot more focus being put into personalized learning, attraction in attack that creates personal education journey for students, and the use of artificial intelligence to also assist in creating a custom-made experience for each student. These are the three trends that I think would be interesting to look forward to in 2022. Interesting. Olina, I'm just glad that you didn't say that, you know, Baiju's is going to take over the world by the end of next year. But who knows, right? It's implied. It's totally implied. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Olina and Dita. Thank you, JD. Thank you for being such an ace at, you know, managing this conversation. Thanks. Thank you, JD. Thank you, Alina. This has been a really fun discussion. What a way to end the year. (laughs) And a big thanks to all our listeners who have tuned in as well. Uh, Here's wishing everyone a happy new year from all of us at the Ken. We'll be back soon with new stories, new products, and a lot of new stuff in 2022. Thank you.